about the Christmas story from God's Word. And tonight we're going to go behind the scenes of Bethlehem. I'm sure many of you have probably heard the Christmas story. Many of you have probably heard it a million times. And you're familiar with the characters. You're familiar with Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, the angel, the magi, and of course, the baby Jesus. And maybe you've even heard of the lines that they've said. Mary, when she asked, how could this be since I am a virgin? Gabriel, when he tried to reassure Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Or who could forget that proclamation of the angels as they sung and they exploded in the night sky and said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's interesting, this Christmas story, how prominent it is in the Bible, especially in two books of the Bible, Matthew and Luke. Not only do we see it repeated multiple times, but it's also given to us from multiple vantage points. We see it from Mary's perspective, Joseph's perspective. We hear of Elizabeth's reaction to Mary's baby. But did you know that there's another perspective of Christmas that you probably aren't familiar with? Jesus' perspective. You see, you're thinking to yourself, well, how in the world does a little baby have a perspective? I mean, no one remembers coming into the world, and they don't know what they thought while they were coming into the world. But here in the New Testament, we find that Jesus is unlike any baby who was ever born before. So to find this perspective, you actually have to go to the most Old Testament book of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a book of the Bible that's full of all kinds of imagery and customs that might feel foreign to us. Uh, It might seem unfamiliar because it's deeply invested in this Old Testament, uh, that other part of the Bible. But the, the argument of the book is really simple. It's just this. Jesus is better. He's better than any of the Old Testament figures, better than the angels. He's better than any of the other religious systems that have been created. And it's a book where you find Christ, or Christmas, according to Christ. So we're going to take a look at that just for a little bit tonight. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 and 7. And in it, it's just a quote from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 40. And it's here where we'll find uh, the vantage point of Jesus. If you ever thought, what did Jesus think about his birth? Here it is. Hebrews chapter 10. It'll be on the screen there, so you can see it. The text says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. So what do these verses mean? What is Jesus telling us by quoting this Old Testament passage to us? Well, I think three things stand out to me. The first thing that stands out is that he came out of eternity. And you see that right here in this passage. It's making a big claim. Another translation of the Bible gives the sense of it. As he was coming into the world, he said. Now, what kind of baby says something coming into the world? I mean, that doesn't make sense, does it? It's telling us that Jesus in this passage was pre-existent. You see, as the divine Son of God, he existed before time, space, anything that you can conceive of. 
in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the blessed, immortal, almighty, invisible, eternal, triune God agreed upon a plan. A plan that we've been looking at. The Trinity determined that God the Son would step out of timeless existence, would become a little baby, would take on flesh and then would present himself as the Savior of the world. John's gospel captures the magnitude of this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then it gets really crazy from there. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So I think it's safe to say that the Bible's not presenting Jesus as just some average run-of-the-mill baby. Now you might find that presentation incredulous, but I think the Bible's pretty clear. It's saying that Christ's life did not begin at Bethlehem. That it began, well, never. He just always was. And as the divine Son of God, he spoke of his own coming well before that history-changing day when he was born in the manger. Now, I want you to think of it like this, though, because it's a beautiful truth. I know that a lot of us are asking the question, well, how do I find God in this world? You're told to read different books. You're told to be in different places. There's different things that you must do in order to find God. And the Christmas story, in in essence, says a lot of that's just a bunch of hogwash. You don't take a long journey and find God. God steps out of eternity, and he comes and he finds you. And that's an amazing thought when you think about it. The God of the universe who spoke everything into existence became a baby so that he could find you. So he came from eternity. Another thing we see here is that he came to save us from sins. Now here's the thing. Uh, To truly appreciate something, you have to understand what its value is. You've seen the little kid open up the present and it's a shirt or something like that and they just chuck it over their back and they move on for toys. They don't realize that the present had some kind of value associated with it. You could think of it like this as well. Uh, Say someone 15 years ago gave you $100 worth of Bitcoins. They're selling at a penny a Bitcoin at that time, right? And so you're thinking to yourself, wow, thanks a lot, man, 10,000 bitcoins, like you might as well have invested in unicorn feed or leprechaun gold for me, right? Not anymore. If you had those uh, 10,000 bitcoins sitting around, you'd be a pretty rich person, wouldn't you? Like a hundred million dollars kind of rich person. Now, here's the deal. If you do have a hundred million dollars in bitcoins, sell those things. I think it's a bubble. So... (laughs) But the point, right? We get the point. We appreciate something when we recognize its value. Now think about Christmas for a moment. It's a nice, nostalgic time of year. We look forward to it coming. We overeat a little bit. We overspend a little bit. We're thankful that we only have to see those people one time a year. But it's less meaningful, valuable, and treasured unless we understand the import or the meaning of what Christmas is. So Christ came into the world. Why? Why? 
Why would he come? Well, to take care of man's biggest problem, humankind's biggest problem. Everyone in the room, if you're thinking about your biggest problem, you might think to yourself something different. Well, this is my biggest problem. That's their biggest problem. Uh, We don't really connect on our biggest problem. But the Bible says that every single person who has ever lived actually has the same biggest problem, that we're sinners. It's been said like this, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. You see, the Bible tells us that sin is a universal problem. If you're asking yourself, well, really, is that a problem that I face? Well, the Bible says, look no further than the Ten Commandments. You're probably familiar with those, right? Don't take God's name in vain, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. You can think of the Ten Commandments like this. It's morality 101. They're God's desires made simple. They're not difficult to understand. They're generally accepted. Most people find them valid. You don't generally find people who walk up to someone and say, hey, I love lying to your face. In fact, when someone tells you that they lie every chance they get, we have a terminology for that. It's called a pathological liar, and that's a disease. Uh, You never find a nation that says, you know, it's a great thing to steal things from other people. In fact, we promote that in our society. You would never want to sit across the table from someone that says, hey, you know, I'm looking really forward to getting married to you, but you've got to understand one thing. I'm going to habitually cheat on you. You don't hear those types of things. Why? Because this is morality 101. These are the things that we would say lead to a healthy sort of lifestyle. It's not complex. The rules really shouldn't be hard to follow, right? I mean, when you think about something like murder, like a lot of things had to go wrong before you have a gun in your hand and you're shooting someone. But the one thing that we can say when we look at this Ten Commandments is that it's impossible to follow it perfectly. No one has ever followed the Ten Commandments perfectly, which means what? We fail at morality 101. I mean, the weed-out course. When I was in college, the weed-out course was organic chemistry for the med students. I mean, it was a tough class. It was one of those classes that if you checked out for like 30 seconds, you missed one of those concepts that built upon one another, and you weren't going off to med school from that point. But this isn't organic chemistry here we're talking about. This is morality 101. God's rules made simple. And here we are, finding that we haven't kept them perfectly. And it gets increasingly difficult when you realize that Jesus taught later in the New Testament hate equivalent to murder, lust equivalent to adultery. Not only does God care about the things that I do physically, but he actually cares about the heart intent. He cares about what I want to do and what I would intend to do if I wasn't caught otherwise. I mean, we're talking about a big problem here. Not only is sin a universal problem, but it's also a problem that we see in the Bible that we can't get out from under. Now, I want to take you back into the Old Testament just for a moment. I want you to imagine that you're a little child and you're growing up in Hebraic society. And this is a society that's really foreign to us. The Old Testament law system was meant to illustrate a point. Let me just read some of the Bible to you. Hebrews 10.1 explains the nature of their system. It says, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. 
The sacrifices under this system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. And then it continues in verse 3, but instead those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So you're this child, you're growing up in this society, you're walking with your mommy and daddy, and you're presenting sacrifices, bulls and goats, to God. And you're saying to your mother and father, did this do something for us? Why are we doing this? Well, it's because we've sinned. Okay, so why am I doing this again next year? Well, because what you did last year actually didn't really do anything for your sin. Now you're asking the question, well, what in the world? Why would God want these sacrifices if the sacrifice didn't do anything to take away sin? Have you ever asked yourself the question, how seriously does God take one of my sins? I mean, does he really care that much about my life or the way I conduct my life? You find out in the Old Testament all kinds of different things if you ever read the book of Leviticus, which I would say, you know, take some time with that one. That one's intense, okay? But in that book, the descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi were being given rules and orders on how they should develop a priesthood. And there were 24 priest orders that were developed under Aaron, and there was all kinds of people underneath those priestly orders. And day after day, year after year, someone from one of those orders was in this temple offering up sacrifices to God. Well, why? Because God took sin so seriously. The amazing thing was these sacrifices couldn't save a single person. They were just atoning for the sins. Atonement means to cover up. Uh, you can think of it like this. Um, you probably are, some of you are probably like me, who keep a very messy garage. And I mean really messy for some of you. Now, if you didn't want your neighbors to know how big of a slob you were, you could do something like take a tarp and throw it over everything in your garage so that when you opened up your garage, you weren't embarrassed by the thing. Now, does the tarp take away a single bit of the mess? No. The mess is still there. You're still a slob, but at least your neighbors don't realize how big of a slob you are. That was all that these sacrifices could do. They would just simply cover it up. It was a temporary solution. It was kind of like that fix-a-flat, you know? Uh, fix-a-flat isn't meant to be a long-term solution when you get a flat tire. It just helps you. It's useful. It gets you down the road. But if you're relying completely on that, you're going to have a big problem on down the road. So what was God's permanent solution? Well, the permanent solution we read about is Jesus. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you prepared for me. You see, Jesus came to do what religion and these sacrificial systems could never do. 
to perfectly take away sins from humankind. In the words of John the Baptist, John 1.29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus was given a body. He was prepared a body so that he could take away the sins of the world. Why? Because Hebrews 9.22 explains, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So at a couple of levels, Christmas has meaning to us. At one level, Christmas is the fulfillment of a plan, of a promise that God had given for thousands of years for people. But at an even deeper level, Christmas means that God stepped out of eternity because we had a big problem, and his precious son would grow up and he would expend his life on the cross. He would die once and for all for the sins of the world. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's why Christmas is such a precious, valuable holiday. He stepped out of eternity. He came to save us from our sins. He came to do the will of the Father. I mean, why would God do such a thing? You ever thought about that? Sometimes we become so familiar with something that we just kind of take it for granted. Well, verse 7 tells why Jesus did it. He said, I came to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So unlike any baby who was ever born before, Jesus knew what he was about when he was born. I was just having a conversation on the phone with a grandfather and his grandson had uh, has been and is continuing to go through kind of like a rough season of life. He's been in and out of the hospital. And as we talked on the phone, the gra- grandfather said something that kind of stuck with me. He said, you know, I believe God has something very special lined up for my grandson. He has been through so much. He's such a special young man. I, I just can't wait to see what God is preparing for him. And I'm sure that that's not an uncommon thought when we think about our children and our grandchildren. I have three. I have a daughter named Lexi. She's uh, eight years old. A middle son named Zach. He's seven. And then I got a little guy named Isaac, a.k.a. Bear, who's three years old. And I look at these kids and I'm watching their personalities form and I'm watching the character begin to take shape in them and I'm wondering, you know, what does God have in store for them? You see, because when we're looking at our little baby, we don't know what God intends for them. But not Christ. Christ knew what his destiny was right there at the very beginning. He knew that he'd come to do the will of the Father. So as that you read through Christ's life in the Bible, there's this intense understanding of what he was about. You look at the story in Luke 2. Mary and Joseph, they're frantically searching for Jesus. They can't find him. You see, they had been moving along with a caravan. They're heading back home from Jerusalem. And uh, like what can happen, you know, it gets busy, it gets chaotic, you get distracted for a moment, and then suddenly you're looking around and one of your children isn't there. I've been there. Panic overwhelms you. So they go about searching for him for two days. And when they find Jesus, Mary's exasperated. Where have you been? How could you do that to us? And Jesus says, matter-of-factly, 
but I will say this not disrespectfully. He just needed to make a point very clear. I am about my father's business. I only and ever only seek to do the will of the heavenly father. Nothing else matters. You see, Jesus knew why he had come. It wasn't to be a great moral influence in the world. It wasn't to gain notoriety or be surrounded by the adoring masses. He didn't come to sit in the seat of power and rule. He didn't come to bring about political reforms that would usher in a a golden, golden age of social and economic prosperity. He came for a much more gruesome reason. In the Garden of Gethsemane now, Jesus stands before his Father. He's praying with great exertion. I mean, he's tied up in knots. Luke tells us that he is under such strain that he's sweating drops of blood upon the ground. And as he prays to the Father, he says, Father, is there another way Is there another way to bring humankind back to yourself? I don't want to face that crowd. I don't want to face the jeers. I don't want to go through that excruciating pain of the cross and the flogging, that barbarous form of torture that only the human mind could conceive of and actually uh, do to another person. Please, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass. There was no other way. And so he fortified his resolve and he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, there was a definite purpose to the life of Jesus. It was to do the will of the Father. It was conceived of in turn he passed. It was made manifest when he was in the cradle. It moved on to the cross. It was fulfilled when he laid down his life. I mean, just think of the wonder of it. Chris Rice reflects on it in this song, Welcome to Our World. He says, Fragile fingers sent to heal us, tender brow prepared for thorn, tiny heart whose blood will save us, unto us is born, unto us is born. So wrap our injured flesh around you, breathe our air and walk our sod, rob our sins and make us holy, perfect Son of God, welcome to our world. So here's the question for you. What does it mean for you? You know, it's interesting. We can hear a lot of things that grip our heart, that stir us. But it's very easy to hear something like that, maybe even to feel goosebumps, maybe even to feel your heart flutter as you hear a message and it resonates with you. It's so easy to hear that and then to move on without doing anything about it. Let me tell you a story. In a book called Deep Down Dark, Hector Tabor tells the story of 33 Chilean miners who were trapped 2,000 feet below the surface of the earth for 69 days. They had to live in the dark with almost no food. They were cut off from the rest of the world. You know what you would be thinking in this type of situation. Am I ever going to get free of this? Am I ever going to be able to move on? Am I ever going to see my family again? So these miners now are coming face to face with imminent death 
And they're starting to take stock of their lives, and they're looking at their lives, and they're saying there's certain regrets that we have. So somebody asks a guy named Jose Henriquez, a Christian, if he would pray for everyone. So they get down on their knees, and some of the men join him, and he begins to talk to God. And he just simply says, Lord, we're not the best men, but have pity on us. And then he gets more specific. Lord, have pity on Victor. He knows that he's drank too much in his life. And have pity on Pedro, because he knows he's been a poor father to his daughter. And have pity on Victor here, who has been explosive with his anger for most of his life. And no one's objecting. They're in the deep, dark depths, and they're recognizing that they failed at Morality 101. And it was the beginning of something special. In the deep down dark, buried under the earth, with death looking in the face, they're starting to get real with God. Men are coming, they're having meals together, they're starting to listen to sermons together, they're praying together, God, forgive me for what I've done. God, please help us in this situation. God, I want you to be a part of my life. Well, meanwhile, above the surface, a rescue effort had begun. People from all over the world began trying to help or give or pray for the men to be saved. But unfortunately, the happiest part of this story is also the saddest. You see, while this rescue effort was going on, they were able to drill down through the rock and they were able to start sending supplies down to them, food, and they got an iPad. And as it dawned on these guys that life was going to start getting normal, and as they looked at the iPad and realized that a lot of people were talking about this, and now we might be popular, we might gain riches, suddenly there was no desire to pray anymore. Why? Why? Well, death is no longer eminent. Money and fame distracted these men from their deepest need, a relationship with Jesus. And they moved on. Friends, what I'm trying to tell you through this story is don't move on. You see, you can allow the days that come ahead to rob you of this most important message that I'm talking about. What could be more important than the fact that God of the universe who spoke all of creation into existence came into this world to live? What could be more important than the fact that he came here because we had a big problem and he laid down his life for us? He came because he knew we all had a deep down dark place that we couldn't fix our own biggest problem. And he came at Christmas. I want to just ask you, if you would, if you would just bow your heads with me. It's good to reflect and to ask God as you hear something like this, what would you have me do? And with your heads bow, I want to remind you of those lyrics that we just listened to, Welcome to Our World. That was the title of the song. And the question I have for you, the question that I'm wondering is, have you ever welcomed Jesus into your world? The Bible gives us a message. It's called the Gospel or the Good News. It centers on the historic events of his life. Jesus, born of a virgin by the will of God. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly met all of God's standards. He passed morality 101. He lived a life that you and I couldn't live. He died on the cross for our sins. 
The death that we deserve to die, he dies in our place, taking our sins upon himself. The Bible also tells us that he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death. So the Bible says that you welcome Jesus into your world by faith. Scripture says it like this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how you welcome Jesus into your world. So the question I'm asking you is, have you welcomed him? Have you welcomed him into your world? And I'm happy to tell you, you can do that right now. And so if you would, just follow along with me in a prayer and welcome him into your world. Pray with me. Jesus, in the best way I know how, I do welcome you into my world. Thank you for coming at Christmas as a baby. Thank you for living a perfect life for me. Thank you for coming and dying on the cross for my sins. I trust you, and I want to follow you with my life. In your name I pray, amen. Amen.